This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Now and Not Yet. Pressing in when you're waiting, wanting, and restless for more. Written and narrated by best-selling author Ruth Cho Simons and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Taylor Lorenz, welcome to Viral Jesus. Because when you scratch the surface and you say, like, why do you not like that word? What's your connotations with it? You'll hear that a lot of people will say a lot of sexist things. Like, you know, oh, they're like vapid girls, you know, on beaches that take selfies or whatever. Like, no, this has always been where content creation, media creation, I mean, these influencers are running their own small media companies, sometimes quite large media companies. And they're entrepreneurs as much as they are, you know, content creators. From Christianity Today, this is Viral Jesus, a show about communication and the power of social connections, where we talk to some of the most influential Christian content creators to find out how they've made their faith go viral. Everyone I talk to on this show is someone I follow or was told to follow online. Most of the conversations you'll hear are with people I have never met in person, yet they've impacted how I think. What does it look like for Christians to enter the chat thoughtfully? Let's grow together on Viral Jesus. I'm your host, Heather Thompson Day. Hello, friends. Happy November. (laughs) I want you to know that for me in my house, the day after October 31st, I told my husband, all the Christmas stuff goes out, all of it. I want to see every, I want to see my wreath. (laughs) I want the lights, babe. I want the tree. Man, I love Christmas time. And in fact, I think this, after the year that I've had, I need the joy and the merry that comes with Christmas. So it's November, which means we are entering into the holiday season. Thanksgiving actually is my favorite holiday. And I don't know about you, but I'm just excited to spend time and slow down with people that I love. So it's November. I think we can be excited about that. I get to sit down today with someone I've been following online a long time, Taylor Lorenz. But first, let's check in with my bestie and co-blogger, Scarlett Longstreet. It is time for another safe space. I wanted to talk to you, Scarlett, about I don't know, misogyny on the internet. I'm reading this book right now um, by Taylor Lorenz called Extremely Online. One of the things she says in this book that I had never quite articulated or didn't have the vocabulary for until she said it was that she feels like one of the reasons people have always minimized content creators or things that are happening on the internet and influencers, actually almost like in a mocking tone when we even talk about influencers, She says that the reason we do that is because it is largely a female-dominated category. And that really blew my mind. I had never thought about it that way. And then she like goes through in the book and like traces all these women that really changed the way we even use social media. So I'm just curious, what are your thoughts on that? Do you feel like there's a level of misogyny when it comes to content creation. Also, what do you think about the online space in general as it comes to women? You know, I just had a very 
deep moment of self-reflection. Did you? Okay. Because I have always struggled and the word influencer really gives me the ick. And I have been very hesitant to label myself that way. And I'm starting to realize, I think it's because I have this negative connotation about it. One, because of how society values the work of women. We don't value it. We don't think it, like it's not a serious thing, right? Oh, influencers, that's not a serious thing. When really we know that women drive our economy. Women make the pur- are the purchasing decisions in homes. Mm-hmm. We should take them very seriously. But wow, I'm kind of wrestling with that. Like, why am I so put off by it? And I think it's because, right, I don't want to align myself with this thing that maybe our culture doesn't, value. And do you want to know what I think is interesting about myself? This is obviously a safe space to say this. I have a level of internalized misogyny because of how much I have mentally in my own mind tried to say to myself, well, I'm different. I'm not going to be like whatever category of influencer that I've always heard about. That's what we do. That's the trope, right? Like, I'm not like the rest of, what am I really saying? Those women? Because when I say that, I'm different. Is my brain even thinking about males in the influencer? No. Because I'm not even following very many male influencers. You know what I mean? I follow like male theologians, um, but I don't even know how large their platforms are. Right. But it makes sense now that I'm thinking about it. And I do the same thing. We want to other ourselves or other them, right? We're different. We want to say that we have characteristics actually now that I'm thinking of <laughs> that are normally assigned to men, right? So for <gasps> my content, I'm I'm really saying something, guys. I, I'm really, I'm really <laughs> doing something with my I'm changing the world. I got I got some <laughs> but now it makes so much sense. I'm saying, oh, I'm not just trying on outfits. I'm not just when like I, I do do that. <laughs> but, <laughs> but this is so interesting. So I think that by aligning myself with this content or these characteristics like that men typically have, I'm in some way better. And it is, Mm. then it is about trying to appeal to what our society has deemed more valuable. I want you to tell the listener, because you were saying something to me the other day about the goal of social media or or the the goal of the influencer is to be one of two things. Yeah. So I saw this the other day and I thought it was so, so fascinating that as an influencer, you either need to be relatable or aspirational. And in order to generate income, You have to be aspirational because people then want to be like you. But for women, it's such a fine line, Mm -hmm. right? And we are constantly dealing with this, right? We want to be relatable. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, she's just like me. And then we also want to be aspirational, but you can't be too aspirational. You can't be showing off. You can't be bragging. You can't be too beautiful or too smart or too much of anything. It's threatening. It's threatening. So women are put in this impossible position to show up every day and prove that I'm so much like you, but I'm I'm actually a little bit just a tiny bit above you. And you and you want to work to be like me, but not too much. You want to know, and we'll end on this, but so I just saw the Eras concert movie. You did too. But Taylor, if you think about it, she's constantly balancing that line. She is probably the most powerful woman in the world right now, one of. And if you listen, one of the things she says in the concert is, you know, I spent my pandemic, I'm really just a 30-year-old woman picking cat hair off my sweater. 
Like that was Taylor trying to say, guys, I'm relatable, even though I'm a billionaire and there's like 50,000 people in the stadium right now screaming and crying at the sight of me. I'm just like you. I mean, this is very much, I don't, I wonder if men do that. I don't think that has ever crossed a man's mind. (laughs) (laughs) That I have to make myself relatable. Oh my goodness. Men don't. And I envy them for it. And this is the, this is the structure. This is the system we live in. It is in. no fault of theirs necessarily. I, I actually, I'm not giving them, I'm not giving them any credit. <laughs> I, I won't do it because it, because society is built to prop them up. But no, men never think, how do I make myself smaller? How do I make myself fit? I'm very jealous that they don't have to, because not only do we have to content create or go to work every day or do all those things that men do, is we have to think about how are we doing that in a way that makes other people feel comfortable. Wow. What do you think is the reason we lower that category or demean content creators because there's a level of misogyny attached to it? It is. We know this statistically. It is a female-dominated category. And does that make us uncomfortable? You know with Scarlett and I, no matter where you fall on the spectrum, it is always a safe space. You are in for a treat today. Investigative journalist Taylor Lorenz is on the pod. I am halfway through her book, Extremely Online, and I had to send her a DM on Instagram and ask her to join us. I just, I knew that you were going to love her, and I knew that you would find this conversation to be so rich. Taylor Lorenz is a columnist at the Washington Post covering technology and online culture. Before joining the Post, she was a technology reporter for the New York Times business section. She is also the best-selling author of Extremely Online. You have got to pick up this book. I am just really mesmerized by it. Here is my conversation with Taylor Lorenz. Okay, so I love opening this show by doing some social media digging, Taylor. And so I've been going through your Instagram, and I want to share something that you posted there. This is actually from an Instagram reel, so I had to type this out myself. I just want you to know that. You say this, Twitter was really the only social platform where it was easy to speak truth to power. Instagram has things contained in comment sections. It is video-based and you can't share links. Twitter was this really powerful platform and there were a lot of people with a vested interest in dismantling it. Okay, I want to talk to you about that. I'm a little bit of a conspiracy theorist when it comes to what's happened with Twitter. What are your thoughts on kind of like the downfall of Twitter? Was that intentional or was it just accidentally mishandled? Oh, no. I mean, there's tons of reporting to back up that it was intentional. Like Casey Newton, arguably the best Twitter reporter out there, um, you know, wrote about how this is sort of a political project for Elon. And yeah, it's definitely his intent to not necessarily dismantle the company, but dismantle public trust in journalism and the media. Taylor, I need this article because I haven't seen it and I want to link it because I've been saying this. Oh, yeah. Casey Newton has written about it a lot. You should follow Platformer. I'll send it to you. Okay, please do. Because I've been saying this and people think I'm being a conspiracy theorist. I'm somebody that Twitter changed my life. I kind of started my following on Twitter and the loss of accurate news, especially with the whole blue check mark. What do you think about the blue check mark? Yeah. I, you know, by the way, a bunch of people have written, like Charlie Warzel wrote a good piece of it, The Atlantic as well about sort of Elon's ideology and what he's doing to Twitter and why he wants to dismantle it. Like there's been a lot of really good critical reporting. It's not even 
at all a conspiracy theory. Like it's, thank you. Elon himself has like sort of tacitly acknowledged it. But I mean, I think the blue check mark is just in line with Elon's goal, which is he has a very hostile relationship with the media. He doesn't, he wants to dismantle public trust in journalism and, you know, mainstream a specific sort of ideology that he has. And ultimately it will fail because <laughs> you can't force content down people's throats and then expect right. them to continue to use the service. So they just, I write about this in my book about Vine, but Vine tried to do something similar, not in a political way, but they just tried to kind of like force their users to consume different content. They were really hostile to their biggest content creators and it failed. It's just, it's a failing strategy because people don't want to be there. They won't show up to a platform that they're not enjoying or using. What are your thoughts about Meta doing the blue check mark where you can buy it? Because for me, that part has been very bothersome. And the main reason for me is because of news. It is mm. so hard for me now to, I have to do all this digging to figure out whether this is an accurate source. What do you think about Meta doing it as well? I think it's a cheap grab for money. And again, okay. like you said, it dismantles public trust. And I think it's a really bad system. And I think they should have ways of verifying people's identity if that's something that they want to do, is, which I think is not a good idea, by the way. I don't think that we should have like real name policies on social media. But yeah, I, agree. I think the checkmark thing has been a disaster on all fronts. <laughs> I am halfway through your book. I am absolutely loving it. I recommended it to some friends of mine. I'm a professor of communication, by the way. I teach social media. So I really have been enjoying your book. I sent it to um, Brady Shearer. He's somebody that comes on this podcast a lot. He's another massive person that studies academically social media. We are loving it. But something I, I think that you did really well was flesh out kind of the influencer culture. And you did it in a way that only a journalist would be able to do it. I want to share an excerpt from your book, Extremely Online. You say this, almost no figure from the early days of the internet was more misunderstood and maligned than Julia Allison. In the mid-2000s, Allison dominated the online world as one of the first multi-platform content creators, but practically no one recognized her as such, in part because there wasn't language to talk about what she was doing. Today, she would be referred to as an influencer. Back then, most people, especially the media, resorted to misogyny. Talk to me about Julia Allison and why her story is so important in the influencer arc. Yeah. Julia Allison was, again, this interesting figure. She was one of the first true multi-platform content creators. She made a living as a content creator in New York, full-time as a content creator in 2006, 2007, which is unheard of. I mean, she blogged, she made YouTube videos, very early YouTube videos, all these different things. She was very early on Twitter and she was this um, kind of young sort of lifestyle influencer before that was really a term. And she was such a pioneer and she was met with the most disgusting misogynistic hate that I've seen in such a long time. Um, there's literally an article on Fast Company titled Julia Allison colon breasts aren't enough. And this is a pioneering young woman that, you know, mm. truly changed the media mm. landscape. And, you know, she was met with vitriol. Do you feel like... Actually, I think you say this in the book, and it was the first time that I'd ever made this connection in my own mind because I have struggled with the word influencer. I think that it, it felt like an ick. Yeah. And then in your book, you talk about how I just wondered, is that a level of internal misogyny that I had where I felt like, oh, this is not as important as something else? And really, is it because it's such a female-dominated space? Have we kind of drank the Kool-Aid on that ourselves? What are, what are your thoughts? I would argue 100%. Because when you scratch the surface and you say, what do you 
think about influence? Like, why do you not like that word? What's your connotations with it? You'll hear that a lot of people will say a lot of sexist yeah. things. Like, you know, oh, they're like vapid girls, you know, on beaches that take selfies or whatever. Like, no, this has always been work. Content creation, media creation. I mean, these influencers are running their own small media companies, uh, sometimes quite large media companies. And they're entrepreneurs as much as they are, you know, content creators. And just because that marketing word is applied to them, it, I mean, again, it, yeah, it's just, I think it's a lot of what people don't like about that word is very tied mm. up in misogyny. Why do you think it is that women have been able to be so successful in this space? Well, I talk about this in my book, but women were shut out of the traditional media in Hollywood for a long time. And they've always been under the thumb of these sort of male-dominated legacy institutions, legacy systems. And so when the internet came along, you saw the rise of mommy bloggers mm. and women really like leaning in. A lot of these women were shut out of the traditional labor market when they had children. And so they turned to the internet to make money and grow their brands and kind of start their own businesses um, because they couldn't go back to work with a bunch of kids in the house. So I think that very early on set the stage for this industry. Women are also very social. Um, mm -hmm. Generally, social platforms, if they are adopted by a very young female audience, that's sort of the biggest sign of success you can have because women are very highly engaged social media users generally. And I think there were huge untapped markets. I mean, the male sort of media ecosystem is, you know, it's always been really robust and sort of fed different men's interests and things like that. Women's media, it's hard to remember, but like in the 90s and the early 2000s, which is so patriarchal and so kind of like limited, it didn't speak to a lot of modern women. And so when women got on the internet, there were these opportunities to kind of share their own voice and control the media narratives in a way that they hadn't been able to before the internet. You talk about mommy bloggers, which I found very fascinating. Some of like the biggest, especially like women Christian thought leaders started out in the mommy blog space. So I was really fascinated by that. And you say in your book that mommy bloggers were the first to build personal brands on the internet and then monetize them. Can you talk to us a little bit about the timeline for that? Who were some of the big people in that space? Yeah. Um, this was like the turn of the millennium. Um, Heather Armstrong, who's the most famous one, unfortunately, she's since passed away, but she started her blog in 2001. Uh, Rebecca Wolf, who I interviewed for my book a lot, it's shortly after. Yeah, there were this whole sort of like cohort of mommy bloggers, which that term itself was sort of fraught, but they, <laughs> a lot of women eventually came to embrace. But yeah, I mean, it was all kind of the, those early 2000s. And the blogs, by the way, back then were like, so different than what we consider now. I mean, some of these blogs didn't even have pictures yet in the beginnings. They were just truly kind of like spaces for women to vent and tell mm. their own narratives. How do you think about like the way these things have changed in light of essentially like they're not being pictures now? I mean, I've stopped posting things to my story just because I don't always want people to know exactly what location no. I'm in. How has that kind of change, you think, people's willingness to engage with social media? The fact that I used to just be able to share some words, but now it's so video photo focused. I think it's really put an emphasis on aesthetics in a way that's yeah. not healthy and great. Like it's like now you have to put yeah. on makeup to make a TikTok video yeah. before you could just- Or a filter. 
filter. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's a focus on appearance. I think it's affected which mm. women have voices because I think people mm. judge others a lot by appearance, obviously. I don't think it's been a net good. I would love to see a return to text-based social media. Obviously, I'm biased as a writer, but I think it's a totally different mode <laughs> of expression. And sometimes it allows women to be taken more seriously because they're writing. Things can't be taken out of context as easily. Like, it's just... I don't know. It's sad that we've lost that mm. as a format. Okay, I totally agree with you. And Brady Shearer, who comes on regularly and does a lot in the space, he was saying that Threads, he feels like Threads is going to your grandparents' house and the furniture is all the same from like the 1960s. He says that Threads is like millennials and Gen Xers who can't let go and can't recognize that like the social landscape has changed. Because I love Twitter so much. It hurts me to not get on that app anymore. I'm trying on threads. I'm still enjoying myself. I like the text, right? Because I'm a writer. What are your thoughts on threads? Do you think that that is us not letting go? Yeah, I do kind of. I kind of agree <laughs> with them. You know, just because I just don't know. I think so. I do think that it's this format that's it, which makes me sad because we shouldn't let go of text. Like text is such an important format. Right? The reason why it hasn't scaled, it's because there's no monetization systems that work. Like it's very hard to monetize short form text updates. Like it's very hard. Um, that's why Facebook pivoted to video and photos and all these other things because short form text is just notoriously hard to monetize and there's no viable business model around it that's emerged. And so I, that's why Twitter struggled. And I think that's why threads will ultimately not hit. You're, you're breaking my heart. Brady said the same thing. He, th he <laughs> says it's not going to work. But I'm curious, what are your thoughts on what happens when kind of like the same industry is owning multiple different platforms? Do we lose something when yeah. the owners of Facebook own Instagram, own threads? What, what happens there? Well, we live in a completely monopolistic tech ecosystem. Meta and Google control everything, everything. Yeah. And the only thing that they don't control is TikTok, which is also owned by a multi-billion dollar tech conglomerate called ByteDance. So there's no like competition in this ecosystem. And I really miss the sort of indie days of social media in the early, early 2010s because there were so many other platforms for expression. There was so much more competition. There was so much more innovation. And now we have Meta and Google controlling everything. What was your own relationship like? with social media. I know you started out on Tumblr. Yes. <laughs> right? So yes, can you yes. talk to us about that? What was that process like for you of essentially, you know, being like a content creator and then now becoming such a well-known journalist? Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess it was like a slow burn. A lot of people from Tumblr went into media, I think, because there wasn't a path to be like a full-time content creator back then. There was no ability to monetize. So you kind of had to get a job and a lot of people went into advertising and a lot of people went into media. And so, yeah, I started doing social media for brands, social media for media companies. And then now here I am as a journalist, which is a very funny, I did not anticipate that, but it's great. <laughs> so did you enjoy social media? Like what was your habits? Have Or do you see social media as something for work? Do you use it recreationally yeah, anymore at all? Or what is it like recreational. for you? Are you okay? Well, like mostly a recreational user. I spend a huge amount of time online. It's also hard. I'm, I'm, some people know this, but I'm severely immunocompromised. And so since COVID, I haven't 
been mm-hmm. able, there's no protections now. So it's, it's more dangerous for me right now to go out in the world than it was in 2020. And so I spend a lot more time, mm-hmm. I think, socializing online than most. And I have a lot of online friends from all, you know, all around the world. And so, yeah, I spend a lot of time online. Can we talk about that aspect for a second? Because I think a lot of times, it just especially like in, in my world, in Christian culture, there's a lot of negatives about mm-hmm. social media and it's making us egocentric. It's making us narcissistic. But yeah. what about the aspect of the ability to connect, right? Especially as we go through a time like COVID, um, how many people were able to stay sane and connected because of the internet. I don't know what your research has shown on some of that. Definitely. I mean, I think a lot more people have recognized that online connections are are just as valid as IRL connections. And a lot of times online connections Mm. lead to IRL. You know, you meet someone online, you become friends, you finally meet up. Those moments are awesome. And I think there's a lot of good in the internet. I think right now, because Facebook and Google are so toxic and TikTok to another extent as well, like, People have this really bad view of the internet as a whole, but that's why I kind of wanted to write this book of like, remember these early days, you know, before it was dominated by these platforms, like Hmm. there was a lot of positives there. And I do think that the internet and its ability to connect people is inherently a good thing. It's just that those connections have been warped, like you said, by these platforms that really do feed into a lot of negative stuff. And so I would love less algorithmically driven, less uh, corporatized and profit driven social platforms. I think we would all be a lot happier. I'm curious about your thoughts on this. I was just talking to a social activist the other day who was saying that her research showed that social media wasn't good for social activism, that it's really good for like an instant burst, but long-term nothing changes. I totally disagree. Okay, please tell me about that because I was shocked to hear her say that. No, long-term nothing changes because these systems are incredibly powerful. And unless you have sustained pushback, there is not systemic change. But no, I mean, huge movements have started online. Like, let's not forget, I mean, just so many, the Me Too movement, the Black Lives Matter movement. Like, I mean, pretty much every like major social justice movement. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a huge movement online still for COVID precautions and for disabled disability justice. I mean, disability justice activism is primarily online because a lot of disabled people cannot physically participate in person sort of protests and events. So yeah, I think there's certainly there is a type of activism on social media where it's just like, oh, let me post the infographic and never really do anything. You know, I'll never really write. But at the same time, it can also be used for to leverage letter writing campaigns, which has made it easier than ever to like, you know, email your senator or make your voice heard. I wouldn't say it's a negative at all. I think it's a tool and it can be used for really powerful change. And it can be used just for, yeah, people just being ultimately just posting but not doing things. But those people probably wouldn't do anything otherwise either, you know? Are you familiar with um, Ala Basatne, the documentary about her Chicago girl? No. Are you familiar with that? I, I just, as you're talking, that's what I was thinking about. Muslim girl who was from her home in Chicago, organizing protests on the ground in Syria, verifying that there would be like at least a hundred or more people at the protest. So it would be less likely that you'd be hurt. Just a fantastic documentary of her activism that she did all from her apartment in Chicago until I think they started sending people over to the States to try to shut her down. But anyway, just an example, I I thought of how social media was used really well around activism. I don't know if you have any other examples. 
Yeah. I mean, again, Me Too, Black Lives Matter, right, like right, disability right. justice, like COVID justice, like there's just, there's so many major movements and there's so many minor things. I mean, again, that's why I think Twitter was so negative because Twitter was this platform where powerful people were sort of out there and on there and easy to reach. I think yes. they're retreating, they're being harder to reach, they're pulling back from social media because they don't want to hear from the public and they don't want accountability. <laughs> and that's a huge bummer. Yeah. That was my thing about Twitter is it felt like this place where I felt like you were able to hold people accountable in a way that other social platforms just aren't designed for. Mm -hmm. And so to lose that, and companies, to hold companies accountable in a way that people actually felt that they had to respond because the pressure was so strong. Mm -hmm. And to lose that just feels like a massive hit. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think it's bad for democracy and bad for the world and bad for America that Twitter has been so mismanaged. I was a, not to switch gears here, but I was a Taylor Swift stan before it was cool to be a Taylor Swift stan. I'm talking like back in 2007, I was singing Teardrops to My Guitar, illegally downloading her stuff on Napster. Um, And something Taylor, I think, did really brilliantly was build parasocial relationships. And she used often YouTube, Tumblr, and different things to do that. I think one of the things that Taylor has done very successfully is reward her fans in a way where people will constantly, I mean, some people who are actually unwell, right, will spend all day long defending Taylor online with the hope that she may see it and invite you to her house and bake you cookies because she has done it before, right? So I was just curious, how do you feel like other celebrities see and view social media? Is it a positive for a lot of them or is it a negative where they feel like the gatekeeping is gone. I think it's so dependent on the celebrity. Musicians have done a really good job of leveraging the internet for attention. Like for the music industry, I think is very good on social media. I think actors tend to struggle a little bit more. You have a lot of amazing mm-hmm. Gen Z actors that really embrace the internet, but then you have a lot of older actors that I've seen try to get online and they don't always know what to do. I would say Reese Witherspoon is pretty good actually on social media. Like she uses it very organically, but it's really musicians like Megan Trainer or Lil Nas X or Olivia Rodrigo, I think that are very good at like engaging with the internet and having this push and pull sort of dialogue with the internet that um, maybe traditional actor type people are not always as comfortable with. This episode is brought to you in part by World Relief, an organization that partners with the local church to serve the most vulnerable. Around the world, increased conflict, the lingering effects of COVID-19 and disasters caused by our changing climate have left millions of people in desperate situations. Many are fleeing their homes and are facing starvation, persecution, and more. These overwhelming challenges cause many of us to wonder, can I make a difference? The answer is simple. Yes, you can. When you join The Path, World Relief's monthly giving community, you partner with World Relief in bringing hope and transformation to the millions experiencing vulnerability around the world. And when you partner with your monthly gift by September 30th, your first year of monthly gifts will be matched dollar for dollar up to $25,000. Double the impact of your giving and visit worldrelief.org slash viraljesus today. What 
what are you hearing in Hollywood as it relates to the influencer? Like I follow, uh, do you follow Dumois? Of course. <laughs> okay. So I follow Dumois and she, I've heard her say multiple times, like I'm talking about real celebrities, not influencers. Yeah. Right. So like, there's this, like, again, this, put she's, I think she's 38. I think we're around the same age. Oh, is she older? Oh yeah. She's okay. I don't, she's been around. Yeah. She's the woman behind the, well, I think there was two women behind it, but they're both millennials. Yes, yeah, there was they're two. both millennials. So I think it shows a, and by the way, no hate to Dumois. I truly love that account. I'm not like shading it in any way. Yeah, so it's great. But I do think it's a little bit of a generational difference because if you ask like a 13 year old, is this person a celebrity? Is Mr. Beast a celebrity or influencer? That There's not that distinction. Big influencers are celebrities. So bringing up Mr. Beast, there's something Brady Shearer had said was how. YouTube and short form video is absolutely going to keep going and change the way young people, I'm talking about my children, I have three kids, experience social media and what they even think social media is. My kids don't know anything about Instagram or Twitter. I don't even know if they know anything about TikTok. They absolutely understand YouTube shorts, right? Like that is their television. That is their celebrities. Can you talk to us about where do you think social media is going for the next generation? Okay, Brady sounds smart because I agree with <laughs> I agree with him 100%. He's amazing. You've got to check yeah, him out. Like, Brady Shearer. Yes, he's correct. And I'm going to tell him you said that. I just want you to know, I, I told him you have to buy her book. And he showed me his audible. He goes, look, I'm purchasing it right now. Oh he's very excited to dig in. Well, I'm honored because it sounds like he knows what's going on. Um, he does. Yeah. I mean, I think YouTube, especially for children. I mean, there are kids that are just like raised on Coco Melon and video, like from the time that they're like right out of the womb, almost sometimes some kids are put, you know, in front of YouTube. And so I think it is the primary social platform for children. And I think it's affects a lot of like who children think are famous. Again, it's like, you know, there's Miss Rachel for littles uh -huh. or there, you know, there's these characters that are on YouTube that I think are very much major celebrities in the minds of young children, because that's who they see every day on their screens. Just the way when we grew up, you know, we saw Barney or someone else, like we would have freaked out, you know? And I think those right. content creators and, and YouTube as a platform definitely recognize that children's market as being very important because they want those users to grow with them, right? They want those kids to start off watching Coco Melon and Miss Rachel and Mr. Beast and then grow up and then start watching other content and set up their own YouTube channel. So yeah. Something you said in your book, or maybe this was on an interview, you can correct me, but I, I, I know it was from you. You were talking about interviewing kids that went to like a YouTube camp. Yes. And how you were taken aback talking to them like, hey, why do you want to do this? Because what you kept hearing was, I want to take care of my family. Yeah. Yeah. Just talk to us about it that. It was so interesting. And I, it's, you know, it's so frustrating because I was thinking of this when I was writing the story. I think there's this narrative that a lot of editors and people want of like, oh, they just want, all these kids want to be rich and famous. And I'm sure, yes, that's part of it because kids want to be sports stars and entertainers. You know, that's always fun for a child to think about. But when I have interviewed kids, not just for this story, but over the years, when you ask kids about why they want to be content creators, a lot of them talk about stability. They want stability. They want power. They want to mm. buy a house for their parents or do something like yeah. they want control over their lives. And they see YouTube as a way to do that. A lot of them also talk about the social status and like they're bullied at school and they want control and they want stability. And they're growing up in this economic system in this world that has none of those things. And I think especially for kids 
that feel that real unstableness, like their parents are struggling in some way, they view YouTube as a way to get out of that. And I think that's very dystopian, actually. But I think they're correct in their assessment of things. Like if you have 100,000 YouTube subscribers and you end up mm, in the hospital mm. and you need to have a GoFundMe for your surgery, you are correct. If you have 100,000 YouTube subscribers, you will get that GoFundMe funded before somebody with no subscribers. So it's like we've created a very dystopian world where I think online influences matters a lot and children pick up on that very mm. well. But I wish we didn't live in that world because it's very sad. I also see that messaging a lot. I don't know how much Disney you watch, but I watch with my kids. I watch a lot of like Disney kid Mm -hmm. shows and there's almost always an element of the person then going and posting a video online in the show, which then reinforces, at least for my children who are watching, oh, this is how I get a message out there. Or this is how I get power in the world. Yeah. Like I get power in the world by creating content. And it makes me sad. Yeah. Maybe I sound like a boomer, but it does. <laughs> I do think that there's something lost a little bit there. And it's a misunderstanding to say that it's all about fame and money because it's not just about fame and money. Yeah. I really appreciated you saying that. I have to ask you this question um, because the majority of my audience is Christian. So the majority of this audience here is 80% women. I think we're like 70% under the age of 34. They are Christian, some of them very loosely, some of them deconstructing, a lot of that. But I was just curious, what was your opinion? What have you seen in the Christian influencer space? Even if it's bad, tell us, because that's a lot of what we talk about on this show is like, how do we as Christians communicate online better in a way that is building relationship and not telling everybody that they're going to hell? Yes. Um, well, do you follow that girl, Lacey Abercrombie? I don't. Oh, at her handle is Abercrombie Lacey. Abercrombie Lacey. We will all be looking for her. There's also Church Chad. I think I've seen Church Chad. Yeah, it's Caleb Huff and Josh Benson. They're both Christian content creators. I was in Campus Crusade for Christ. Okay, you're one while. of us, Taylor. <laughs> Welcome into the fold. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm not really religious in the same way anymore, but they make very funny memes about times that I remember like youth group type. I think things haven't changed because these are making me laugh as if like from (laughs) memories that I have from like 20 years ago, but like they're making them on TikTok now for Gen Z. But yeah, they're really funny. Lacey does these like pretend sermons. And I think it's always funny how like pastors or whatever will be like, like they start in the most weird, they'll just come up with like a pop culture event and then try to relate it to like Jesus <laughs> <Yes>. somehow. <laughs> and so like, and so I just think she does such good like parodies of that. And same thing with the, it's church Chad. Like they do a really good, I mean, I've dated some, when I was younger, like very Christian men that were ultimately a little bit, you know, they parody this specific type of guy that's like, oh, you know, like the Lord is really mm. calling me to you. Uh, you the know, Lord told me. <laughs> like, yes. And that's what they say when they break up with oh, you. Oh, yeah. The oh, Lord 100%. impressed me mm-hmm. that we aren't supposed to be yeah, together anymore. It's just right. It's not that I met, you know, Stacy from uh, down the street. It's. <laughs> <laughs> Taylor Lawrence is the author of Extremely Online. I cannot recommend this book enough. I'm telling you, you will absolutely love it. You have to pick it. You can pause the episode right now and just go wherever you order your books, the library, Amazon, if you're using Amazon. Order this book, Extremely Online. It is absolutely fantastic. Taylor, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me.
So what did we learn from our conversation with Taylor Lorenz? Number one, Taylor makes the argument that our desire to kind of, you know, how we like belittle content creators, or even I talked about my ick, and Scarlett talked about it, her ick with the term influencer. Could that be internal misogyny? Online content creators are predominantly women. And is that why I, for some reason, am often feeling like, oh, it's not that big of a deal. But what Taylor points out is these content creators are running one-stop shop businesses and advertising firms and marketing companies, often from their homes. And why would we not respect that craft? Number two, Taylor makes the claim that there may have been powers with a vested interest in intentionally dismantling Twitter. And of course, this really frustrates me because I loved Twitter so much and I met so many people, like some of my first online community was derived through Twitter. But I think what that shows us is how threatening and how powerful these social networking sites can be. Number three, Taylor started out as a blogger and now is a nationally recognized journalist. This is honestly what I love about social media. When it's done right, it has the ability to create real community, guys, to create real connections, to open doors. Also remember, all the people who use social media to stay sane during COVID. There's a lot of people who aren't able to be out right now. And social media provides an opportunity for people to stay in community. Viral Jesus was brought to you by Christianity Today. I've been your host and creator, Heather Thompson Day, producer and audio engineer, Lauren Joseph, and executive producer, Ed Gilbreth. Please review and recommend us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I want to keep the theme of social media going. I probably should have done a pod class. I I don't know if it's too late for that. Can I just call this a pod class now? (laughs) I probably should have thought that through. But next week, we're going to sit down with Brady. Brady Shearer. So it's basically going to be part two of what we did this week. I love Brady. And I asked him to come on because he's done a lot of social toolkits, but we haven't had him for a full episode. And I just cannot wait to sit down with him. You guys are going to love our conversation. I want to talk to him about kind of the hope and the future of social media and why it's so important in such a digital landscape. So join me again for part two next week. Also, don't forget on Monday for the rest of 2023, I'll share a little devotional with you. It will always be under 10 minutes. So you can listen while you go to work or drop the kids at school. But my hope is that it will help you face your week in faith. By the way, I just so deeply appreciate getting your guys' messages about the devotional. Um, I read one this morning and I've really had a hard week and somebody sent in a really beautiful message saying how much it means to them to kind of, the different experience of hearing my voice read it. It just feels like you're you're actually getting, again, some interaction and community and like a friend whispering to you, you can do this. Oh my goodness. That was my heart behind this. So I love hearing from you guys. Please leave us reviews and share it with your friends. Thank you so much. I'll see you next week for another conversation where a viral Jesus guest talks and you and I listen so we can learn. I love growing with you. 
on Viral Jesus. This episode was brought to you in part by the audio adventure series, Discovery Mountain. Help your kids fall in love with the Bible. Each true-to-life adventure story will draw them closer to Jesus. Visit discoverymountain.com/ct.